So can we just have a round of applause so it's like on the podcast for Rennie Edo Lodge? <laughs> Welcome, Rennie. Um, I, Welcome, I, Emma. I just said backstage, I don't know how I wangled this because you're so in demand. Like, how have I done this? Because, you're, you, you know, you don't say yes to everything. Well, A, you got in early. <laughs> Extremely early. I did an interview with you and your podcast almost a year ago. But also, I've been a long-time listener of your podcast. I was listening to it while I was writing the book. So... That means when that you means asked me, I was like, well, yes, I'm going to come and speak on your podcast, you know? And that was last year. So uh, you wrangled it by making good content. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't set you up to say that, I promise. Um, no, and I've kind of forced you into being my friends now. So this, um, this, honestly, I've been so excited about tonight. This is really special for me. And I'm just so glad everyone's come, obviously, to see you. I feel like I don't need to introduce you because this sold out in like 10 minutes. But... Shall we quickly just have a recap? Because as you said, so Rennie came on my podcast in 2017 in around May or June, I think. So yeah. we're kind of coming up to a year. And obviously so much has happened. I can't really keep up. But your book, which I read as a blog post, like everyone, in 2014, is now a Sunday Times bestseller. Sorry, this is throwing my notes. It's no, won so ahead. many awards. <laughs> it's been picked <laughs> on the... I love the paperback, by the way. You have to get the paperback, even if you have the hardback, because in the... Front cover, inside bit, it's got all the quotes. It's got Vogue, it's got um, Emma Watson picked it as Book of the Year. It was or for her book club, yeah. Um, you've got the shortlisted for the books on my bag, the WOW Award. An award from the Women of the World Festival, yeah. Um, Longlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction. Yeah. I mean, shall I carry on? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I just want to read all of the awards out. The latest one is the Orwell Prize for Political Writing. I just um, was longlisted for that. And, of course, there was the uh, Jalak Prize, the book which the book actually won, and the uh, very fresh and new um, Jalak Prize. I think it's in its second year for a British writer of colour. So that was really special. That was amazing. And quickly, just before we start, because I promise I will, I'm not just telling you all the awards you've won, um, but you donated your prize money. I did indeed, yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. OK, so... Well, why did I donate my prize money? I won prize money of £1,000 for the Jalak Prize. And um, it's unexpected money, you know. So it, I didn't need to factor it into the budget. So it's just sat there. And I didn't really think about doing anything with it. And then, um, you know, I live in north-east London and I have for most of my life. Uh, and um, I'm not going to say it's... It's particularly new or recent, but at the moment I feel like London is really in the grip of, you know, youth violence and it's something that's really affecting a lot of people. I'm just lucky, having grown up in north-east London, that it's never directly affected me, but I know it's affected friends of friends, etc., etc. And it's been the case since I was a teenager going to school in Enfield. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I've always found that the solutions posed by politicians and commentators are very... Um, punitive, you know, sort of like patriarchal, put them in um, youth camps or national service and that'll teach them sort of solutions. And there, I never see any empathetic, caring solutions that talk about child mental health um, or, um, you know, youth advocacy or anything like that. So I was just watching the news um, the other day and there was this young woman, Temi Moale, who, has, who leads this um, youth advocacy project called The Forefront Project. And I'd actually known about her work for quite some time. And um, she was talking about youth violence as 
primarily a public health issue to do with mental health, to do with the fact that a lot of the people who are affected by this are not receiving any support, any trauma counselling, um, that, that fundamentally, you know, we, we need to be living in a caring society. So she was saying all of this stuff that made a lot of sense, and then I went on the website and I looked at what they were doing and I saw that, you know, the, organ- the organisation was, you know, working directly with teenagers and young people to get their voices heard and and I thought that's where the prize money has to go because they need it more than me and I wasn't even expecting it so well I I I think it's amazing that you did that but I also think it was really powerful and made a point because it's almost like it shouldn't be coming from your prize money though like Mm. and and I think that's what you said in the caption like this shouldn't really be coming from me this should be something that's being I, yeah, the, I, the government should be funding any yeah. project that A, sees youth violence as a public health ec- epidemic and B, is attempting to try and tackle it from that angle. Mm. But while the government isn't, uh, when I received some unexpected money, I thought, let me put it forward mm. to that, yeah. Well, this podcast is loosely themed around the internet. I talk to interesting people about sort of technology, but also about their creativity and about their craft. So... I wanted to talk to you, actually, because um, I'm going to tenuously link these two together. I saw that you did that on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, we both, I think, believe how good and bad it can be. Mm. Obviously, your blog post went viral a few years ago, and, and that played a part in, obviously, this amazing book that we, we get to read. I also listened to an interview a while ago where you said that the New York Times editor just kind of followed you on Twitter a few years back as well, and mm-hmm. you got this amazing commission and... That was an incredible piece you wrote about was it the London, London housing. Yeah, the housing and, crisis um, and how I'm never going to be able to afford a house, yes. And I thought, you know, so many magical things have happened online and, and looking at your, at your career and how it's grown, these moments seem quite, um, you know, important. But also I feel like you really inspire me as someone who can take a handle on it and actually as your career has evolved, you've taken a step back and you're not, you know, sat on Twitter every day like I am still. Um <laughs> But I just wanted to ask you about that and how you carve out time, you know, to Mm. do the work you want to do. So I think for me, something that has constantly weighed heavy on my mind is the idea of ownership and owning, you know, your creative output, which I think is it's been on my mind for a few years now. And then I think, you know, what the Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica and data harvesting, it's suddenly really been pushed to the top of the agenda. So when I decided to donate that prize money, I thought, Actually, the first place that I decided to write that I'd done that was my own website in which I own the hosting space, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that it, it, that might seem like an extreme example and, and not everybody is going to be using the internet to, you know, c- do a creative output. Um, but e- even if you're not putting your creative output online, um, I still think it's important to get a handle on it yourself before it gets a handle on you and mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm perfect I still look at you know the internet almost sometimes the first thing is the first thing I do when I wake up which I don't know why I do that to myself um this can be sometimes very stressful but um for me I I want to use it uh, as a additional tool to get out what I'm saying mm-hmm. rather than you know, find find it ruling me. And sometimes in life, I have found that social media has 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 ruled me. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to just sort of strike a happy medium there. I mean, there would I wouldn't have a career without social media. That's for sure. I mean, look at British journalism mm-hmm. and 
you know, the book's just been long listed for the Orwell Prize for political writing. And I'm, I'm saying that not to make a plug, but I think you should just go on Wikipedia and see previous winners and previous shortlistees. It's very pale, male and stale. Like, this is the... <laughs> <laughs> like this is the environment in which I'm working in. Like people like me are not usually in this space, and um, so now that I I am in the space, I'm trying to think about how to use it sort of carefully mm-hmm. and responsibly. Um, and and yes, we always speak about the perils of social media, but social media also played a role in putting me in this place it's just it's an interesting one like you say because I feel like for so long you you were fighting to be heard like and and as you were and as you say in the book and 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 how no one was listening and it's really it was really frustrating to to read like those times where you're on like national radio Mm. and people were saying you know, making you feel like you you didn't have a point with what you were saying. Mm. I mean, now obviously the blog the blog post goes viral, and now everyone wants you to speak at their things. Everyone wants a piece of you, and it's like I can't imagine how that must be. Kind of, it's two extremes. Yeah, I'm trying to be selective. I'm trying to be selective about it. And you're right, I was definitely fighting to be heard because I felt that a, a serious, well evidenced anti racist perspective was not just lacking in the British media conversation, it barely existed, barely existed. There was like one, two black full-time writers doing it well and, there were me- and everybody else who was doing it was a freelancer. And as, we, as many people know, that's fairly precarious work, mm. often so underfunded that even if somebody's got the talent, they don't necessarily have the resources to really do the proper reporting. So that's something that was very important to me and I really did feel like I was banging my head against a brick wall for the vast majority of my career. Like, it's literally only since the book came out (laughs) that that I feel that... um, that I'm no longer banging my head against a brick wall, you know? Um, And it's quite interesting, I think, because I was fighting to be heard. But even... You know, in the media landscape, as somebody who was writing and doing journalism was and was sometimes being asked to be a commentator, I could see that the game was rigged. Mm. I really could. You know, I would be recruited to be the one angry black person. I was often recruited to be a reactionary voice against a an agenda that was already decided and I was not able to shape that agenda. Uh, and... That was extremely frustrating, and I think that the radio um, debate, you know, that I speak about in Chapter 5 of the book was absolutely that. Mm. Absolutely that. Um, in which I was, you know, I felt like walk- it felt like walking into a trap. It really did. Mm. Um, and now I'm in a position where, you know, again, I would say, like, the vast majority of, like, British media production, and we're... T- I'm not just talking about news journalism, but I'm also talking about, you know, who makes our our, our television in general, you know, it, who makes our films, not just serious hard news, but also pop culture. It's still so overwhelmingly white. But, um, and the, the anti-racist perspective, and I'm not just, I'm not saying that the anti-racist perspective is, a, is something that can only be inhabited in a black body, um, but I am saying that, the perspective at least needs to be considered and it's just less likely to be considered in overwhelmingly white spaces, um, that I feel that the, the traps still exist. Um, I'm lucky now to be able to have, you know, for example, I, I do my own podcast at the moment and I, I've got Arts Council funding for that, to be able to 
um, sit, you know, take that perspective and have it to be the like baseline for the reporting and the work that I do at the, you know, currently. Um, but I'm asked to participate in these traps all the time still, these media traps, to come and be a commentator on this and that. And, and I look at the agenda that they're asking me to speak to, and it's an absolute joke. Mm. I mean, just today I was asked, can I, would I like to come and speak about censorship and freedom of speech? I'm somebody who writes about racism and, and anti-racism, and I, and I think it's fundamentally... Uh, a sleight-of-hand trickery trap to try and locate that work in the same space of, as censorship and freedom mm. of speech. I mean, that is what the far-right do. <laughs> you know, the far-right look at my work and they say, oh, she's trying to shut down debate, oh, blah, 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 freedom of speech, etc., etc." Um, when, when actually, like, I wholly believe that there can be a multiplicity of voices. Um, and, and, I, and I feel that I mean, this is a mainstream news organisation that was saying to me, your perspective would be very much um, valued on this conversation about censorship. I mean, it's insulting and it's ridiculous to try and link the two. And I've only ever seen the, the, you know, the conversation about anti-racism and just justice being linked to to conversations about censorship and freedom of speech by people who don't care about anti-racism, frankly, you know. Mm -hmm. So the traps still exist. I'm just now in the position where I can say, this is a joke and I'm not participating in this rubbish, you know? I wonder <laughs> if that's why as well, you know, the rise of podcasts, because we, you know, you can sit on a podcast and we can be as nuanced as we like. We, there's no clickbait. There's no, there's no headlines on it. It's, it's literally like, let's have a chat. And I wonder if you've had that before where, I mean, it, that must be a horrible feeling to, like, always feel like you're walking on eggshells and or into a trap. And, I mean, I have it with, like, I've been invited on um, Good Morning Britain and it's like, um, will you come on? And, you know, it's, it's like, um, are millennials idiots or something? Mm. And, um, and then I'm, like, going in, like, just, oh, like, yeah. It's not going to go well, is it? It's not going to go well. <laughs> not for you. Because <laughs> I'm, like, I'm the idiot, aren't I? Um, yeah, talk to me about your podcast a bit because okay. um, it's taken over the iTunes homepage, which is amazing. So it's called About Race with Rennie Edo Lodge. And for me, what I wanted to do, I think like my readers were, were making it very clear to me they wanted more. I wanted to carry on some of the conversations about the book. But um, I didn't want to just crank out, you know, another piece of written work. I wanted to bring in some, I, I wanted to bring in some, some voices, you know, from the last few decades of anti-racist activism. And, and I was in complete and continue to be in complete editorial control of it. So for me... You know, I think being in editorial control means having some baseline values and also being somebody who's been watching the British media industry for a while, I know that, like, actually not many um, media outlets have a core value of anti-racism. <laughs> so I was like, OK, so I'm going to do this. That's going to be one of the core baseline values. And I want to explore some of these, some of the issues in a non-clickbaity way, in, a, in, in something that actually, you know, brings light, not heat to the conversation, so it's not a debate between somebody who, you know, a carpenter and somebody who doesn't believe in chairs. Like, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be something that actually teases out the nuance of the conversation, you know. So the next episode, which is going out tomorrow, actually, is all about, you know, the issue of political blackness, because there's been such a heated discussion about that for the last few years. And f for me, that was really important. And and I feel like some of those issues in sort of like the British media landscape have simply just been very tokenized. Um, 
you know, for a 10 minute discussion with people arguing and chatting over each other so it can go viral <laughs> on social media. And I'm just not interested in, in courting the drama audience. Mm. I'm interested in, you know, attracting the, the thoughtful audience who actually want to think more about these issues. Because, I mean, fundamentally, you know, before I was a journalist, I was an activist, you know, before I was an author. And I still am an activist and I want to change people's... Uh, I want to change... A, the world, and B, people's ideas about the world, you know. <laughs> um, and I want to, you know, win hearts and minds. And, and, but fundamentally, that needs, to cha- that needs to start with a, a different perspective, and that's what I want to provide. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, since the book came out, and, and I've sort of been looking around at the, the power that I have now, I've thought to myself, well, what, what do I want to do with this? And I, and I know that I don't want to participate in in what the British media industry wants me to. And so I thought, let me use the power for something in which I can push the conversations forward and, and create, you know, conversations and, and content that allow people to continue to, to think around these issues. And, and that's really what I want to do. I mean, I think for me, it's so important to, to change hearts and minds and bring, bring people along on a journey um rather than to be seen just for the sake of it or be heard for the sake of it yeah. because i i'm now adequately heard mm-hmm. so the question is what to do with the voice yeah because in the amazing extra sort of it's not an extra chapter it was it a chapter there's like a bit called yeah. the aftermath yeah. in the paperback that's what we call it we call it the, the aftermath, aftermath. and yeah. it's it's an amazing it's so powerful it's amazing because it's it's kind of what you've learned in the year but but also um stories and anecdotes of kind of events you've done and people that have spoken to you and people that have come up to you and also people that have kind of got it really quite wrong mm-hmm. um people who have like burst into tears in the audience and you're like not not my problem type type thing because that's that you know you 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 explain it really well because actually it's not your place to kind of like take on other people's emotions to the book you wrote it that's kind of where it ends but um there's a bit where you say Someone goes, oh, it's controversial, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then you say, have you read it? And they say, no. And it's almost like kind of when you meet you as well and when you read the book, it, it's not a controversial book, is it? Um, I think for people who haven't read it, it's controversial. Um, <laughs> so I think that when people see the title and they see the cover, like for many people, it brings up a lot of emotions, but I'm not a therapist. Do not bring the emotions to me. That's all I ask. Like, because I cannot, I'm not equipped to help a person deal with those emotions. I think that I would like people who, when those emotions bubble to the surface for them and they're sort of feeling things and they don't even know why, it's just oh, it's making them feel agitated. I would like them to just, just reflect on those feelings. Um, <laughs> that's what I would like, you know, reflect, oh, why am I feeling like this? You know, do I feel attacked? Do I feel this? Do I feel that? You know, just reflect on them. Because for me, it's quite exhausting to be on the receiving end of of, of those emotions, particularly if they haven't engaged with it past the front cover, mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and it, it does happen quite a bit. It really does. I mean, the stories <laughs> of... Um... The, you know, on public transport. Mm. Like, on the way here, I wanted to reread the aftermath on the tube, and, you, you, you know, you have it out, and it's strange, but people do look at... You know, they do look at you, and they think, mm. oh, what's that? Well, Which is good, but it's just interesting that it's that controversial. Yeah, um, because... And I... You know, I spoke about this in the original blog post, 
the line I wrote was, it's like the words hit a, a barrier of denial as I, you know, as the words re- leave our mouths and reach their ears. It's like, you know, like treacle in their ears or something. That was the line that I said. Mm. Oh, I should know it off by heart by now. <laughs> um, and what I meant by that is it's like a, you know, like um Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's a Babel fish that translates in your ear or it's like a, there's an issue of interpretation here between what I am saying and what some people are hearing. So when I say why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, some people hear, I hate white people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which is not what it says. <laughs> and like, I but, because when when I said, "Oh, Renny's coming on my podcast last year, like mm. around publication day," people were like, "But but why is she talking to you?" Mm. <laughs> That's not what the book is about. And also, the first of all, the first like, it's I, then I feel patronising. Am I patronising people when I explain to them the meaning of the word "why," which <laughs> <laughs> suggests an explanation? <laughs> and if you want to know the answer to the sentence. <laughs> You have to read it, you know, like, why? 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 Well, if you want to know why, read on. Um, and people literally hear, I hate white people. And I don't know what to do with that, because I have to just come to the conclusion, I'm not responsible if that's what you read. I did an interview recently, and, and then somebody tweeted me, and they were like, oh, huh. yeah, I was wondering, like, how you were dealing with your white friends. And I was like... I never said that I hate white people and that I'm expunging them from my life. <laughs> I just said, I mean, I feel like I was very clear in that initial blog post. Like, it's really clear. <laughs> very clear about the attitudes I no longer wanted to engage with. I feel sorry for some of the booksellers <laughs> who said that people would come up to the tills and be like really weird with them. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I've I've done the utmost to be really clear here and also um, really just, like, elevate that, that reason. And so if somebody is now choosing not to listen, that's their personal problem. I, can't, I can no longer... I can't help them with that. I can't mollycoddle, tiptoe, or, you know, butter them up. I can't do it. But what's amazing <laughs> is that, you know, in this climate, Actually, books are really hard to sell, and your book is consistently on the bestseller list. People are consistently buying it. So isn't that just so incredible that even though, you know, we're talking about the people that are bizarre on on public transport, people are really proudly going to buy it, and what you're doing is saying, look how many more books you should write like this one. Yeah, I hope that... And how other people, other authors, the industry as a whole... I hope that I think that a lot of what it's done is just elicit curiosity in people, because um, no, I don't remember writing any lines about how all white people are, people are evil. So I, that's not what I wrote in the book. And I think that a lot of people who are white, uh, who are not white, have been curious as to why I would have written a statement like that in the first place. And and I think that for me that initial blog post and the whole book was just it was a moment of pure self-expression it wasn't oh I want to teach people it was just self-expression it was something that I really needed to get off my chest and I really wanted to um say and I really wanted to evidence and I really wanted to research and and I think that like the industry needs to be listening out for other people who have got something that they really just want to get off their chest you mm-hmm. know um yeah but I think curi- curiosity is a very human thing and i'm i'm here for curiosity i i highly encourage it Mm. yeah because the thing as well i I know you were saying um 
is kind of the pressure of, of now being this voice, which you are, it's kind of not really fair for you to be like this one voice. It feels like, you know, people want more, which is great. And people mm. are always saying, like, I want more podcasts, I want more books, I want all this stuff. But do you feel as well like that sort of proves a point as well, that there should be more? And oh, it yeah, shouldn't absolutely. just be on you to keep providing mm. in that way. So one thing that happens to me is that I get a lot of opportunities now, which I just give away like sweets. I just like, because, you know, my background is in activism, I just know so many people who've been working and slogging away on these issues for years. And it, for me, it's uh, like, I want those people to have the recognition that I have. Um, it just absolutely needs to be democratised. And I think that it's, you know, really unhealthy, actually. Um, I don't want to be the anti-racist celeb. Like, that's not my... It's not my interest. Neither has it ever been ever anything that I've ever aspired to. I just wanted to express myself. So with the opportunities that I have, I mostly try and give them away as much as possible unless, I abs- unless it absolutely has to be me um, in order to make sure that the movement is fully represented, you know, in the in the public sphere. Like, that's really important to me. Yeah, that's it's incredible. Um, before we kind of pass over to some questions, because I, I really love, like, to make it a bit more interactive and, and have some of you ask some questions as well, if you're happy with that. It will be on the podcast, so, you know, don't... Keep it clean. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to just finally sort of ask, and this is quite a big question, I suppose... Um, what have you What have you learned in the past year that you kind of? I, I want to do like the whole, whole like Oprah, what do you know for sure thing. But like, mm. what what um, what key takeaway would you say, kind of, since we last spoke on the podcast a year ago to now? Mm. What would you say is like the one thing that you're just like, whoa, I didn't know that a year ago. Hmm. About I, yourself or about? I think that I've learned about myself uh, something that I think I already knew, but it's become very much more apparent to me now that there's an awful lot of interest in me because of the book, which is um, I really want to just do my own thing. Like, that's always been really important to me. Um, and so given the opportunity to do a whole bunch of things, I'm just like, no, I just want to do my own, which I think can be quite confronting to people, especially people with money <laughs> and, like, organisations behind them for me to be like, I'm just not interested, sorry. So that's been an interesting one. And I think that uh, a lot of people don't understand that, but I've always wanted to do my own thing and, and like being ridiculously like focused on what I want to bring to fruition created this book. And so I, I've decided that I have to stick on that path. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that another thing that I've learned is I think I wasn't quite... The, the tectonic plates of the world shifted while I, you know, I've been doing activism since like 2010. And in that time, between then and like 2017, when the book came out, like the tectonic plates of the world shifted in such a way that what I was saying in 2010 was suddenly taken a lot more, a lot more seriously in 2017. Because I don't think that what I'd been sort of saying with my writing and activism was very different than, than back then. And, and I think that what I, what I've learned is that, um, People are largely open and generous and curious. Um, But it does take some extraordinary circumstances sometimes for people to get to that point, like broadly as a society, to be like, wow, um, yeah, maybe there's something in this anti-racism thing. Like, it took Trump and Brexit for people to be like, gosh, there's something bad going on. (laughs) 
in society um and it, for them to sit for a lot of people to sit up and uh, you know people that's a very broad term um I, there are also some of us so who maybe have been involved in activism maybe haven't who have been like trying to shout this for many many years even when things were you know superficially good in society and politics but the tectonic plates of the world shifted in such a way that people really ready for for the book and that's something that really um shocks me i suppose mm-hmm. because you know when like those electoral gains happen i suppose the thing is like as an anti-racist and as an anti-racist activist you can get a bit cynical and you can be like oh look there's proof of racism again there it is again you know and um and yeah i think that the response to the book has really like reinvigorated me it's been re-energizing to me it's given me some of the vim and vigor that i had when i was like 19 and first became an activist and sort of uh because you know i had that sense of urgency which i i think comes across in the book and and now i'm surrounded by people with that same sense of urgency as well which is it's good i think for the general aim of changing the world, which I'm assuming that all my readers want to do. Mm. Um, so that's what I've learned. It's been it's been a really interesting journey, and then I think like just personally, um, it's been a funny one to have achieved the sort of goal because and my broad broad goal was basically I just wanted to change the way the country was discussing and thinking about race, um, and then I did that, <laughs> and now you're like. <laughs> what what next (laughs) you know like it's a bit disorientating and I know that it wasn't all all me and my work but the tectonic plates of the world had shifted in such a way that that I feel like Britain was sort of ready for a book like this and I I always feel like it's in it's arrogant to say that the book started a conversation because come on like decades of rich anti-racist activism in Britain, a lot of which I write about in the book, but it certainly provoked um, a discussion, and and yeah, I think that I've been. I love how honest you're being. I mean, it, it started a huge conversation and provoked Emma, provoked, provoked, provoked. Um, but it, it it does end on a positive note. The, your aftermath bit, and and yeah, it's incredible. You should you should all read it. Um, can we just have a little clap for the questions? Thanks, everyone. Does anyone have a question for Rennie? Yes, thank you. I think uh, we've only got time for a few, um, I'm afraid. But Hi, my name's Olivia. Where's the audience, Olivia? Hey. Absolutely love your book. And yeah, so um, I just want to ask, quite a few instances of racism in this country I feel stem from ignorance. So to what extent do you think it's people of colour's responsibility to educate the ignorant, if that makes sense? Well, I mean, it really depends if you're talking, doing this face-to-face. Yeah, yeah, if we are talking about face-to-face ignorance. So quite like probing questions. Like, for example, I'm mixed race and I get like, but where are you really from questions? So to what extent do you think it's like, the responsibility of people t- of colour to, to say, okay, look, this, like, can you stop asking these questions? Or just to sort of enlighten people who don't really, yeah, who aren't really around a lot of people of colour, if that makes sense. 
Well, I'm a big believer in the power of saying no. And I think that it can be far more powerful when you are faced with that question to just... (laughs) (laughs) I'm smiling, by the way, audio. And then just don't say anything. (laughs) And I think that that will bamboozle them, you know? Um, I think that that's far more powerful than having to find yourself in a painful back and forth Mm -hmm. Uh, and then take all the energy that you're going to put into trying to educate that one person into creating something um, that will will reach far more people. That's what I would say because, yeah, I mean, I've been there and I just didn't find it very effective. So that's what I would say. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. Hi. Um, So... What really resonated for me was the issue that when you're talking to people, they just can't hear or see what you're saying. Um, And Adam Curtis, who I don't know if you know his films, but he talks about odierism. So we're bombarded with awful things and we watch them and we go, oh dear, that's really terrible. How do you get, especially the white people who read your book, how do you get them to move from, oh dear, that's really bad, to actually stepping towards something more activist in their behaviour? Well, I don't really know what my white readers do when they finish writing the book. I, don't, I mean, when they finish reading it, I, I have no way to know or, or track that. Um, so what I try and do at you know, events like this and when I'm talking about the book is really emphasise... Um, all of our responsibilities to to change things that we've been injustice about, you know. I mean, I think that, like, I became an activist because I felt a deep sense of responsibility to, to attempt to try and challenge injustice. Um, and I would hope that any white readers who, who read the book um, also feel that, rather than just putting that down and being like, well, that was an interesting read. Um, but uh, that being said, having written it... Uh, I don't know if it is my responsibility to tell my white readers what to do. I mean, even though many ask me, what should I do? And I say, I don't know. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I end the book, you know, the original ending, not the aftermath ending, talking about, you know, there's no justice, there's just us. That's a Terry Pratchett quote, you know bring your skills to the table but I can only leave it as vague as that really so I don't know what happens after that point it's out of my hands <laughs> I feel like I'm favouring the front row but you, your hand did go up first yeah. thanks Hello. Um, yeah firstly just want to say thank you to Renny I f- definitely think this book should be in the, <laughs> in the school curriculum one day and hopefully it will be um just off of memory, I'll start with a quote from Half of the Yellow Sun, um, where they're in a conversation and they talk about how um, being black is only the opposite to uh, white. Uh, Nigeria, being Nigerian is only there because the British created Nigeria, but before all of that, um, he was Igbo. He was an Igbo man. Um, I wanted to ask you, you spoke about ownership earlier. That quote, for me, really kind of talks about ownership um like how can we like reclaim our blackness and start having ownership over the agenda and ownership over kind of things because a lot of things get 
we're kind of told what we are, who we are, but how do we kind of have ownership over that? Mm. I think, like, for me growing up, I felt very um, consumed with how to be the right sort of person that I should be, you know, sort of like as a woman, as a uh, as a black person, as a young black woman. And for me, it was super liberating to sort of just start to really disregard those when I disregard those ideas. I think particularly you know, being young and black and, you know, from an African background, there are so many, like, well, I'm not going to... There are certain demographics who love to perpetuate toxic gender roles. And for me, it was really important to really start to turn away from those things and feel in control of the kind of person I wanted to be in the world. And so I suppose the first step towards really owning yourself is to start start questioning some of those like really pervasive dominant narratives about who you should be first of all um and and it gets better from there that's what i'd say (laughs) (laughs) do we have another question hi i'm lauren i was just wondering like because in your book you speak about people that are of um mixed race heritage how there's a responsibility on, say, the white parent to be culturally aware was the words that you used. And I'm in a, a interracial relationship, and I was wondering, do you think it's an awareness, or do you think it needs to be a kind of action type thing towards educating the child on the problems they might face, or do you think it's like a cultural education on the history? What what kind of thing do you think needs to be done? Okay, um, I suppose what I was really trying to say with that chapter was just, let's say you are a white parent of a child who is not perceived as white by the world. You can't be go, you can't be moving saying I don't see race. <laughs> it's just not adequate. So I think that's like that was a key message that I was trying to get across there. Now, uh, and that's that's a conclusion I drew mostly after speaking to mixed race friends and. You know, I'm not mixed race, so I can't speak to the experience and I don't don't wish to. But I think as long as you don't try and do the colour blindness thing, it should be okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, because I think that the colour blindness thing can be extremely hurtful. <laughs> um, particularly for you know, for people of colour who are in intimate relationships with white people, whether that be, you know, <laughs> parenting or being a partner or whatnot it can just be extremely hurtful so yeah that's what i say just don't do the color blindness thing <laughs> i think we've got time for one more if anyone oh we've got someone right at the back there if you don't mind coming up thank you it's like on um being on like a game show come on down <laughs> hi um so I am part of um, a diversity and inclusion group called Hespame, and we're trying to encourage more diversity and inclusion at work because there's not that much or any. Um, and I kind of um, am wondering if you think that the whole diversity and inclusion movement at the moment is just kind of a buzzword and a phase because the conversations are being had or if it's something that's actually going to be quite sustainable. Well, it's a good question. I'm self-employed and have been for a long time. So it's been a really long time since I've been in a workplace. And when I was, I was in very junior positions. So um, I can't speak with a whole bunch of expertise. But 
I suppose the one thing that I can say is, um, you know, if people like you keep banging the drum, and I think there's this... Um, I can't remember exactly who said this. I wish I could, but they said something along the lines of, in those workplace situations, three is a magic number. Like, when there's three of you saying the same thing, that's when you can start getting to that tipping point um, of actually being taken seriously um, and then also, like, fighting your way up to the senior positions and stuff. Um, I, I don't want to say that it's a it's a buzzword. I really don't. Um, but I would say that if you've got these senior up high people who are taking the conversation seriously, uh, it's also your responsibility when it's no longer being discussed broadly to hold that person accountable and be like, well, you know, in 2018 you were saying this, it's now 2022, where's the results, you know? Uh, I think that's the most important thing. Um, I, I, I'm wary of, you know, this conversation about trends and buzzes and whatnot because the the possibility of sustainability and of longevity is down to us, basically, you know? As long as, as, long as we keep up the momentum, I think that that's the most important thing. Uh, and for people you know, in senior positions who have recognised momentum and have made commitments, it's also down to us to hold them to account on those commitments when they decide, oh, um, there's another thing that I'm interested in now. I'm interested in the environment. Not saying that these things are mutually exclusive. They're not. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, so that's what I would say. I was going to ask you something again, but I feel like um, we need to be friends. No, squeeze it in. I was going to say, on on sort of that note, with um, quotas, mm. do you, how do you how do you feel about quotas? Because I read a um, a tweet the other day, and and it was quite I thought quite a good way of um, summing it up that quotas are like Invisalign braces that kind of mould what it should be, mm. and then until you take the braces away, they we need quotas. Oh, I, that's I just, an interesting. What do, what do you think about that? That's an interesting analogy. <laughs> I mean, I'm not against quotas. I'm I'm for them in principle. Um, I'm against the uh, opposition to quotas. <laughs> Let's just say that. Uh, the opposition to quotas, which is like, oh, well, those people aren't going to be qualified. But I'm sorry, if the same people who have been reaching this position are all of the same demographic, are you really telling me that the only people who are talented are middle-aged white men? Mm. that is an informal quota and has been in place for a good few hundred years. So yeah. I'm against the opposition to quotas, which makes me buy the four, four quotas. <laughs> <laughs> Rennie, thank you so much. I honestly feel so grateful for you and for you in general and for you coming on my podcast. Um, this will be on Control-Alt-Delete-Podcast tomorrow. If you want to relive the experience, I will. Um, and um, your book is amazing. We don't, we've said that enough tonight, but seriously, yeah, you should be so proud and thank you. Thank again. you. And, and thanks yeah, for coming. Thanks. Check out my thank podcast, you. people. Yeah. Love to it, yeah.